Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And welcome to the Billboard Chart Beat Podcast. Gary Trust, Billboard's co-director of charts. And hey guys, it's Trevor Anderson, a chart manager here at Billboard. Part two this week of our 1987 countdown. So uh, last week we did uh, numbers 40 through number 21 for August 29th, 1987. So we're picking up uh, this week with the top half of the countdown. If this were a TV show, Trevor, we should have done last week at the end of the show to be continued that was a big thing in the 80s I, nobody would have seen it though because there was always the screen fades to black and then they kind of have you know bring up the little text and the dots so I mean, there's, like, no, there's no sound no one says to be continued I guess so we should have said it it's a you know I don't know if it would have had the same effect um, but high five and congratulations to you if you got through last week so it was it was, it was a bit of a marathon there yeah. I mean, probably actually if you were I mean not maybe not a marathon but if you're a really talented runner you probably could have run about two thirds of a marathon in that time. Yeah, it's about an hour, hour and thirty six minutes. I think one thirty six. That's that's great time. Also, um, shout out if you also paid ten- paid attention last week. We also had a nice interview with our friend Tiffany, right. who was making her debut um, on the chart for August 29th at number eighty four. The song "I Think We're Alone Now," and now I know many many any kids who are in the eighties now have that song stuck in their head. Have you guys talked since the interview? There was a connection there. I mean, Tiff, if you're out there, you know. Hit a hit a bro up. She's married, but you guys had a connection. It's, I mean, your home wrecker, Trevor. Uh, <laughs> you know, music history, unfortunately, is full of home wreckers. I guess I, I pinned myself to that list. All right. So uh, last week in the top 40, a lot of classic artists, a lot of classic hits. We were at uh, Hart, Prince, Gloria Stefan, Bob Seeger, uh, uh, Steve Winwood, Sammy Hagar, Banana Rama. That was just 40 through 21. So we're going to go 20 to 1 this week. Plenty more stars from the 80s, having some huge hits, having some deeper cuts that maybe you don't remember as well, uh, uh, some of their biggest hits at this point. So we're going to go 20 to 1. And this week, as we said last time, we had Tiffany on last week. Got to have Debbie Gibson on this week. So she was making her chart debut 30 years ago as well. Her debut album, Out of the Blue, was uh, just coming out around this time. It was about to make its chart debut. And uh, Debbie Gibson is coming up here on the countdown. So uh, let's uh, kick into this week. 1987, August 29th is the date of the Hot 100. We'll go 20 to 1. This is number 20.
Numbers 20 through 16 this week on the Billboard Hot 100, August 29th, 1987. We got kicked off at number 20, cover of a classic. It was Wipeout by the Fat Boys and the Beach Boys. So originally... All the boys. All the boys. Uh, number two hit originally back in 1963 for the Surfaris, and that was the time when the Beach Boys were breaking through. So it made sense to bring them on uh, to this song. Uh, we go on to hit number 12, and then uh, the Fat Boys realized they were onto something. In 1988, they remade The Twist. With Chubby Checker, he, he wasn't officially credited on the song, but uh, it was a top 20 hit as well on the Hot 100 a year later. Uh, their cover of the all-time Hot 100 number one, The Twist. You know, that. I mean, I guess nowadays they always say that everything comes around in, in, in 20s, so I mean, I guess this, the logic is still, is still true back then. 1987, cover things from the 60s, get that wave of nostalgia going, and there you go. Right, like how uh, we're getting covers now of stuff from, from the 90s. Like Camila Cabello remaking uh, Fastballs Out of My Head was about 20 years earlier. So yeah. same kind of deal. We had a whole album from Taylor based on 1989 sounds. Right. I mean, yeah. And uh, here, here's my favorite stat about uh, the Fat Boys. It's not a chart stat. Their combined weight, the Fat Boys, is a trio, about 750 pounds. How did you, how did you, uh, did you access people's medical records? Or? No, I, I read that. So seven fifty into three is about two fifty a piece. Yeah. Uh, number nineteen this week, uh, hitting the top twenty this week, up for number twenty five. I think one of the most interesting songs, really, in Hot One Hundred history. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Uh, Touch of Grey by the Grateful Dead. So here's the deal with, with uh, Grateful Dead at this point. Uh, now, two thousand seventeen, legendary act. Everybody knows about them. Uh, people knew about them then, but to that point, uh, they had had five Hot One Hundred hits between 1970 and 1980 hadn't been on the chart since then and had never gone higher than number 64 and then they come along with this song touch of gray obviously much more catchy more mainstream more poppy than pretty much anything they'd ever recorded at that point uh would go on to a number nine peak in september so it became their first top 40 hit after being on the chart for so long and the album was from uh, in the dark would go on to hit number six on the Billboard 200. Similarly, uh, their first top 10 on the Billboard 200 with their 23rd entry about 20 years into their chart career. So that would be like now, an act that's been around for about 20 years, you know, big, but it never had any kind of hit single suddenly having a hit like that. Maybe I'm thinking sort of like how Daft Punk a few years ago with Get Lucky broke through with a hit single, kind of, kind of like that, I guess. You know, they're still going so strong now, obviously. We lost Jerry Garcia, but uh, in May 2017, they just celebrated 50 years on the Billboard 200. They've had 83 charted titles as we're taping this. Just debuted a couple weeks ago at number 30 with their latest compilation. Uh, They've had five top 40 albums this year alone on the Billboard 200, The Grateful Dead, here in 2017. Like they've been in the top 40 this year? Yeah, with five different titles. uh, Is a lot of it like like, like legacies? It's you know, all these Dave Diamond Picks. Things. It's these Dave Picks compilations. So they keep uh, re-releasing old shows, and they sell really well. The fans want to have all these copies. Uh, folk. Oh yeah, I think. Oh yeah, definitely. Deadheads love love the, the concert and the the live, the live atmosphere of it. So that makes sense why people would want to grab right. those up. And uh, the latest one uh, on the August nineteenth chart. It was the fourth best-selling album of the week across all genres. Uh, yeah, I think the other thing too, when you look at this overall. Uh, so this was their only top 10 hot 100 hit their only top 40 hit so i was looking at what other acts have had one top 10 on the hot 100 and no other top 40 hits 
who are also legendary. So obviously, Ooh, not the not the editorial discretion about well, legendary. Well, it, it, yeah, it, it's kind of editorial. But obviously, a lot of people have had one top ten and no other top forty. It's just just one hit wonders, mm-hmm. and that's their only hit. But who who's done that and is an absolute household name? I came up with two who I think fit that. You, I'll, I'll run the test by you. Okay. I think the best example, the best-selling album artist in Nielsen history. Uh, oh, that uh, interesting. I want to look at that case. That's an interesting case. Um, so I'll go ahead and let everybody know that the answer to that riddle is the one and only Garth Brooks. He was on the forefront of that country explosion right. in the nineties. Yeah, seventy sold a ton of albums, seventy one point nine million albums sold in the U.S. since uh, Nielsen uh, data began in nineteen ninety one. He's had one top forty hit, one top ten hit on the Hot One Hundred. It, it's such a lost, no pun intended, song in his catalog. Lost in You, number five, nineteen ninety nine. It was Garth Brooks oh, the as Chris Gaines. Gaines. Yeah. So it's not the dance. It's not uh, Thunder Rolls. It's not Friends in Low Places. Uh, one. Top 40 hit on the Hot 100, and it's a top 10 hit, just like Grateful Dead. One other one, uh, going back to the early 70s, me and Bobby McGee, number one hit, 1971, her only top 40 hit. And everyone everyone knows who Janis Joplin is. Interesting. I mean, I, I guess not not to, not to undersell, I mean, that was, what, a little bit after she had passed away in 1970, so that kind of probably with the Pearl album kind of swept kind of swept some of that up maybe right. yeah you know but the common thread among all these three acts still a great song though right uh, but grateful dead garth brooks and janice joplin all not core pop acts so they've completely uh, found their following found their audiences and just you know for these different circumstances wound up having one song that crossed over so it's not like they were core pop acts they they had their success just made uh, made these inroads uh, once once in a while at pop all right, let's move on. Number 18 here on the Hot 100, 1987. Down from the top 10, it had gotten to number four, British band Tapao with Heart and Soul. And I, I know basically nothing about Star Trek, but Tapao is named after a Vulcan princess. I don't know anything about Star Trek either, so I... Mm. We'll move on. <laughs> uh, number 17, uh, interesting uh, title and artist because they're the same thing. Uh, at number 17, Living in a Box by Living in a Box this week 30 years ago so in that in that you heard about self-titled albums right talk about a self-titled single that's bold it's uh in the it's not the only song ever to double up as a title and art voices that care in 1991 actually i went to number 11 but yeah there have been acts that have put their names into mc hammer here comes the hammer my name is prince the old alabama last year we had roses uh, by Chainsmokers featuring Roses. Yeah. We just had Kill Jay-Z by Jay-Z. Yeah. So it, it happens uh, every once in a while. But uh, this was uh, pure, uh, same uh, title and artist. And uh, they have a greatest hits. It's called uh, The Best of Living in a Box. Uh, the, the missed opportunity, they do not have a greatest hits called The Living in a Box Set. I was. I knew box set was going to have to... Living yeah. in a box set. Maybe they don't have, a, maybe they don't have you know, quite enough to make it a whole, a whole set. <laughs> I'm kind of willing it into into existence. I see. Uh, we'll, we'll look out for that on Amazon. Uh, uh, coming num- coming near you. Number 16, uh, wrapping up uh, the first uh, five songs here in the top 20 this week, 1987. And goes back to a song we heard back, uh, if you're listening last week, at number 29 was One Heartbeat by Smokey Robinson. And at number 16 was a descriptive song about that when Smokey Sings by ABC. 
And uh, they would actually go on to be in the top 10 together uh, in October. So uh, uh, One Heartbeat was on the rise. Uh, so was When Smokey Sings this week. And they'd both be in the top 10 for a week in October. Uh, Paul Grine, who uh, created the Charpy column and Billboard, he, he confirmed it. He said it was the first time that a song about an artist has appeared in the top 10 at the same time as a song by that artist. So history I was about to be made. I say, look at look at Smokey. You know, tw- I mean, this is over over twenty years, like we said, since he um, since he came to prominence through through his tenure at Motown and with the Miracles. And I mean, that's I wonder how it makes him. I mean, I'm sure. I guess if you ask him how it makes him feel, he'd probably say what a lot of celebrities say when you ask him. It makes me feel old. But uh, how great, you know, that, that that there's a group out there that wants to pay tribute to you. The same way we'll see, you know, down the line with a lot of acts, Tim McGraw, obviously, and Taylor Swift. Um, and plenty of others. How would you feel if there was a podcast called When Trevor Talks? Wouldn't you be? Wouldn't you feel good about that? I would, ooh, I would be scared before that first click. I'd be like, oh, they're probably going to roast the <laughs> hell out of me. Like, when Trevor talks, I just want to, you know, just just throw my computer out the window. And uh, that, was, uh, that was actually ABC's last uh, hit on the Hot 100, but it was their highest charting. We'd go on to hit number five. Uh, they, they had some great songs in the mid-'80s, like kind of a new wave pop, uh, soulful kind of crossover. The Look of Love was a hit. And they had one top ten before when Smokey sings "Be Near Me" had gotten to number nine. So good, good catalog for ABC. All right, let's keep going. We're up to number fifteen now on the Billboard Hot 100 this week, All right, let's pick it up back at number 15 this week on the Hot 100, uh, August 29th, 1987. 
Number 15, we've got Here I Go Again by White Snake. Not an 80s countdown if you do not have an 80s power ballad. So, uh, White Snake filling that, filling that bill for us uh, to kick us off here. Here I Go Again, um, which most people may not realize this. Obviously, Smash hit 1987. Um, it's climbing up the chart. Eventually, it will land at number one later in the fall. Um, but this song was actually originally recorded in 1982 uh, on the group on a group's album, but was redone uh, in 87 for, for their self-titled album. So it's one of those kind of cases where, and there's, there's a few others in music history where, you know, the first time, for whatever reason, it's not picked as a single, doesn't quite work out the same way, and, you know, in the moment, and the timing is right, and, you know, timing a lot of times can be everything in music, it gets you a number one hit. Uh, about the same time, uh, we heard uh, Steve Winwood back at number 22, but he'd then have uh, he had a Valerie. Same deal. He had recorded an earlier version of that. It wasn't really a big hit. Uh, gave it a little more polish, a little more uh, late 80s production. That went on to become a top 10 hit, uh, also in 1987. So another another example right there. There you go. All right, uh, number 14. We got, uh, ah, yeah, Huey Lewis and the News doing it all for my baby. Now, one of the things that I think people may not actually remember about this song is it's a music video. Actually, kind of, kind of quirky. It's actually it's about almost eight minutes long, yeah. which you know was kind of one of those things almost reserved only for Michael Jackson at that time. I mean, to go and do that full that full movie, it has this little this weird mad scientist vibe to it in this graveyard. It's it is kind of cheesy nowadays. It holds up, but uh, uh, Huey Lewis in the news uh, really coming off their huge run of hits in the nineteen eighties. Um, they had scored their third number one hit just earlier that year with Jacob's Ladder. Um, their third of three number one hints that they'd all had between 1985 and 1987. This song, Doing It Off My Baby, uh, ends up being a number six hit on the Hot 100. And I'll actually have one more top ten uh, right after that. The song Perfect World will get to number three. And that will be the last time Huey Lewis in the News, at least this far, has uh, hit the top ten. This song kind of, you know, it's a fun little, it's, it's got a little throwback sound to it. Yeah, a little doo Yeah, I mean, it's the harmonies. Oh, yeah. In the Four Seasons kind of element. That, that was a big part of, of their sound back then. Uh, yeah, they kind of, uh, they anything almost they put out in the 80s became such a big hit. Yeah, you know, music changed a little bit, went a little harder in the 90s. And, you know, they, they weren't able to, to keep that string of success going. But uh, so many classics, uh, not just not just The Power of Love. So I, the Perfect World you just mentioned, it's probably my favorite song of theirs. Oh, yeah. All right, uh, we'll keep on climbing to number 13 this week, back in 1987. Uh, we had seen on last week's countdown two songs from the film soundtrack to Beverly Hills Cop 2, and we finally bring up the third and final piece on this week's chart. That's going to be George Michael's I Want Your Sex. That was a pretty risque title at the time, and it, it was a big deal to say that on radio back then. So uh, you saying it now, 30 years later, it's, it's a, little more, a little more acceptable now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot worse that's come across uh, come across the airwaves in that time, but uh, yeah. So George Michael, I want your sex. Like like Gary said, a pretty pretty straightforward kind of song out there. Um, this single also a, a big moment in George's solo career. Uh, he'd obviously been one half of the duo Wham and really the front man of that group. Uh, had gone solo and around this time he put out one song already number one hit earlier in the year he had Aretha Franklin uh, the duet right. I Knew You Were Waiting For Me but interesting song because you know it's and when you listen to it now it, it it's it's so 80s it's 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 kind of weird how it's got that 80s how production. overt it is right. in a way without you know it's not it's not creepy but you're like this is almost you know, if this had been anybody else it really could have been like a novelty song that's just like okay right. like 
that's just you know that's what that's the song that you put out whatever from a 1987 to today and it's that same deal he had been in a poppy group a duo before then and whenever these acts want to uh, make that uh, break to being solo they so often do it with this song that uh, so literally announces i'm an adult artist zane pillow talk yeah. really not that different from george michael what he did uh that's yeah that's, that's a fair point that yes I, yes i am a man now i've, I've grown up yeah it's like the musical version of a bar mitzvah because we're in 1987 when I had mine. That's how artists announced that they were becoming a man at that point. <laughs> this, yeah, there we go. I want your sex, parentheses, George's bar mitzvah. All right, we'll leave George behind at number 13. We'll keep on climbing at number 12 uh, this week in 1987. We got Dion Warwick and Jeffrey Osborne, a duet called Love Power, uh, written and produced by one of the big adult contemporary teams uh, of that era, Burt Bacharach and Carol Bayer Sager. I mean, Dionne Warwick at this time, we'll, we'll focus on her first. Um, you know, Dionne had been around for, for as we've seen with a lot of these acts really on this countdown, Beach Boys, Smokey Robinson, others. Dionne had had a, you know, two-decade-plus career at this point. And it's interesting because there are actually a lot of a lot of sort of vocalists from the R&B scene who are in that same kind of mold at this point in the 80s. Um, we mentioned with George Michael just a few moments ago, his duet with Aretha Franklin, you know, so she had had a, a number one hit earlier that year. Right. Also in the 80s, um, you know, we've got another duet between uh, Patti LaBelle, Michael McDonald, On My Own, which was also number another number one hit um, just a few years back. So, John also fitting into that, to that mold of these duets that, you know, really, really extend the life of the career. Right. And and kept uh, all these veteran acts going, like we said uh, last week. It was a good time for veteran acts, uh, especially right here around uh, 1987 with uh, Smokey Robinson. We heard Grateful Dead. It was just a time when uh, they were putting out good music and it was still accepted. It feels like somewhere in the 90s, uh, pop culture as a whole just got, got a little slicker. You know, videos had become much more entrenched and just became more about youth but in 87 yeah. it was still it was still cool still people, cool to be experienced people found out that kids had money you know that that changed the game nothing on jeffrey osborne nah bro <laughs> I, I can help you here he was uh, he's from providence rhode island i worked on radio in providence we played uh, stay with me tonight a lot on the radio it was a big big providence hit even it was a hit in the 80s but uh, even even into the 90s uh, when i was there it was still still got a lot of requests still always came up in rotation Oh, yeah. Shout out to Providence. Shout out to Providence. Um, but for now, we're going to keep on climbing to number 11. And we're going to talk about, uh, this is actually great. They're on the chart this week. One of the, the big acts of 1987, who we can't go without mentioning, U2. Uh, number 11 that week on the Hot 100, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. So the song had been number one for two weeks. At this point, it's sliding back down and it's just come out of the top 10. Uh you know, 1987, I mean, you think of, of course, With or Without You, which it would had been the single before this, hitting number one. The Joshua Tree album really just, you know, opening the door for U2 in a way that it hadn't before. They'd hit the top 40 um, previously before these two number one hits with Pride in the Name of Love, which had got number 33. But like I said, with Joshua Tree, I mean, still today holds up as one of the most critically acclaimed albums of all time. Right. Wins the Grammy for album of the year. And we've heard a lot this year of the 30th anniversary of the Joshua Tree. Yeah. So I mean, uh, they're on tour, you know, performing the whole album, um, a lot, some legacy kind of reissuings going on. So definitely holds up as one of the, the classics, not only the eighties, but really of all time. All right, guys, we're up into the top 10 at this point. So 10 more songs to go. Uh, numbers 10 through six. We'll check those out right now. Let's give them a go. Try to 
so much, baby, that it tears me up inside. Alright, number 10, we're going to shove right over to Gary, because I know he is a huge <laughs> fan of that song. Uh, that's Can't We Try, Dan Hill, a duet with Vonda Shepard. Uh, so, Dan Hill is one of those guys, again, that most people may not realize they know a song by him, right. but they certainly, certainly, certainly do. This is uh, about a decade after his first hit, uh, similar sometimes song. When, sometimes when we touch. Right. Like, literally that one. Yeah. You know, the honesty is too much. Right. And and everyone knows like those four lines from that hook, and then maybe they don't know the rest of the song. But even to have like that kind of like sort of one of those iconic hooks, I mean that's 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 got to be something. Yeah, and can we try such a catchy song too? Maybe in the shadow a little bit of of sometimes when we touch, but huge hit in '87 really fit that uh, that those male pop singer songwriters who were so big uh, at this time on the charts, uh, a big AC artists in the '80s and '90s, uh, going back to the '70s. Cool thing to note, also, yeah, of course, for, for Vonda Shepard, that um, even though even though she'd had a top ten song, you know, in her career, probably certainly best known as as the singer at the bar from a couple seasons of Valerie Beals. Right, definitely, definitely, things still coming for her. All right, um, we'll keep on moving up to number nine. We've got Starship. It's not over till it's over. This song uh, is the eighth top ten hit that Starship is going to have, and. Will be their last trip to the top ten. This even actually also dates back to their days as Jefferson Airplane. Uh, you know, kind of one of those songs that, and may, maybe people will see as kind of appropriate, you know, as the as the 80s kind of start to end. And as you mentioned a couple times, um, some new sounds, whether it's, you know, new sounds at R&B, new Jack Swing are going to come start moving into the mainstream. Grunge for rock. Yeah, exactly. Um, country's going to pick up as well right. around the corner. So one, one of the last heydays for one of the rock acts that has been really consistent for the 70s and 80s there. And if you look at the small print uh, on the Hot 100 this week, 1987, you see one of the writers, that's Phil Galston, who was on the podcast earlier this year. He oversees the songwriting yeah. program at NYU. So look at that. He's in the top 10 this week, Co-wrote 30 years ago. Save the best for last. Right. Which, yeah, well, I mean, I, what do you think? Are those, are those? Can you see the same guy having a hand in those two songs? He, uh, he, he went for the hooks. 
when he when he would write uh, some of these songs in the eighties and nineties and two catchy songs. Yeah. So yes. Okay. <laughs> so yes. And look who we're up to now, Trevor at number eight. Yeah, I was gonna, I was going to say as we as we turn the page from some of those acts who were big in the seventies and eighties, we're going to look at somebody who is going to be. Big in the 80s and huge in the 90s. I think I can leave here. This is going to be the Trevor monologue <laughs> to his idol, Whitney Houston. All right. Uh, number eight is Whitney Houston. Didn't we almost have it all? Um, so the second single from from the Whitney album, which earlier that summer became the first album by any woman to ever debut at number one on the Billboard 200. So that, you know, already in a way tells you how big Whitney was in 1987, how how much expectation there was for the second album, anticipation really as well. Um, had had a number one hit uh, earlier that summer as well with I Want to Dance with Somebody Who Loves Me, which actually this week on August 29th um, is sliding back down the charts, but it's still there at number 52. So now the second single taking its place. Um, you know, one of those songs, I mean, it's obviously one of uh, the big ballad. You know, they, they kind of played both sides. I Want to Dance with Somebody, a little more fun up tempo for the summer, but then remind people, of course, of Whitney's vocals. Right. Um, you know, in terms of, what do you think in terms of the Whitney ballads? Where do you put this? I song? was going to ask you that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it. I don't know if it really gets its due. And um, uh, Gary, it's so tough. Because, I, personally, yeah. I'd probably put uh, "I Have Nothing" as my favorite Whitney ballad if I had to rank. Yeah. Them. Okay. And or, and or one moment in time. For some reason, those are the two that that I like the best. Okay. I mean, I'll both. I mean, all really. There is no not solid choice. So those are all. Those are all good choices. I, mean, I think it's one of those songs that that people really appreciate the vocal performance. You know, I mean, nineteen eighty seven Whitney. It's very hard to top that song. Just just the ability. But I don't know if it you know really gets the same kind of love. You know, in terms of the culture, whether it's on you know talent shows that people audition for or yeah, songs that right. people really even know. Right. I wouldn't think most people would even maybe know the words to the song. I mean, it is a little long. It, it clocks in. You know, over five minutes on the on the album version. It really shows off her so. vocals, though. She holds a lot of notes. It's, yeah. it's a total powerhouse vocal. I mean, especially, yeah, I mean, like around the second chorus, some of the bridge. I mean, that's those are some high, high sustained notes. Uh, if you haven't heard it, you know, check it out. Um, and this is the part we're talking about. When I mention that, that bridge part, this is what I mean. that part got its own you see what i'm saying got its own piece of the countdown here two two clips of that song it you know it had to i mean those are vocals that you just can't you can't describe you just have to you know a voice is worth a thousand words i guess um but also to wrap this up into whitney's chart career at this time um we mentioned george michael a little while ago uh, about four number one hits from the same album uh this album that whitney's currently in the cycle for is going to do that as well like we said i want to dance with somebody was already number one. Didn't we almost have it all? It's, it's on its way to number one. And then the next two singles, So Emotional and Where Do Broken Hearts Go, will also hit number one in 1988. Uh, also, fun fact, Gary, I think chart nerds probably know this. Um, tie those four number one hits to the three number ones that Whitney had from her previous album, Saving All My Love For You, How Will I Know, Greatest Love Of All. 
that gives her seven in a row on the Hot 100, which is a record, uh, breaks the record that the Beatles and the Bee Gees had. And remind me who's done that since? You just want me to come out and say nobody's done it since? Nobody. Nobody's been able to string together seven number ones in a row on the Hot 100 ever since then. And the song that broke Whitney's streak, do you remember? Uh, yeah, we actually, yeah, this is, this is actually kind of throwing it back as well, because as we talked about on last week's countdown, uh, there was a song by Jellybean and Jellybean will actually, actually does produce the song that breaks Whitney's streak, which is a song called Love Will Save the Day. Was another top 10 hit, uh, peaked number nine later in 1988. A little more experimental. It's, it's easy to see why that didn't hit. It wasn't based so much on a hook. It was kind of more of a club song. So it was kind of like a bonus single to begin with. Anything else to say about Whitney for now, Trevor? <laughs> I think I think we're gonna uh, we're gonna leave Whitney uh, for a little bit. Um, one fun thing we'll note, um, kind of tying together Whitney number eight and number seven, the uh, the masterminds of Whitney's next album. After all this this Whitney era, you know, where do broken hearts go? Love will save the day. So emotional is over. Three years from now, she'll be working with the production team behind the hit that is number seven. This week in 1987, the song is, that's a lot of sevens, Rocksteady by The Whispers, produced uh, by L.A. Reid and Babyface. So this is actually the chart debut um, of of those two. Yeah. I mean, they'll go on to be titans, of course, for the rest of the 80s and certainly into the 90s. That's a song you still hear now. 30 years later, Rocksteady, that, that still plays on, on adult you contemporary hear? radio. Really? Oh, yeah. All the stations I listen to, yes. I, <laughs> I guess you're listening to the old stations, I, I guess. I've, but... If anything, you know, the Whispers can definitely claim that, you know, they, they help put L.A. and Babyface on the map. Right. And with the Whispers at number seven, uh, that's going to become a very familiar place for L.A. Reid and Babyface throughout the next decade. You know, the dynamic duo is going to go on. Babyface alone, as a producer, uh, going to have more than 40 top ten hits to his credit. And L.A. Reid going to have more than 20. And, of course, L.A. Reid transitions into a successful businessman, running a few record labels um, into the 2000s, 2010s. So really, you know, this is this is one of the starts that I'm sure in 1987, you know, nobody would have have seen coming. But this is a big week for those guys. You know, this is this is the start of, of a new era. That's what's fun about these contents too. We look back; it's you know, the chart was frozen in time when it happened, but now we can see who went on to have a different uh, sides of their career years later. It's a great example of what they'd go on to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of somebody who is already having a big, a huge career at the time, and will go on to even more iconic heights. Right there at number six, the icon of the decade, Saida Garrett, uh, teaming up with Michael Jackson, who is the birthday boy, August 29th, 1987. That's right. It's Michael Jackson's 29th birthday. So um, glad we're talking about him. And at number six, uh, I Just Can't Stop Loving You, the first single from the Bad Album, climbing up the charts. It had been number 10 the week before and climbing on its way to number one. You know, we're in the midst of all these albums we're looking back of that had so many hits. George Michael, four number ones from Faith, Whitney Houston. We were just talking about all these hits. This mm-hmm. is the first single of seven from Bad. So an era where albums really went deep in singles and kind of interesting. I, I suppose looking back at the hits from Bad, that, that this was the first single, a number one hit it would go on to be. But I think if you think of the Bad singles now, you don't necessarily think of this song at least first or maybe remember that it was the first single given what came after it. And part of that, too, probably lending to the fact there's a music video for the song. So, you know, doesn't, doesn't quite have that same familiarity that people would with, you know, I mean, the Billie Jeans, the, the Way Made Me Feel, even, or Dirty right. Diana or whatnot. You didn't mention Man in the Mirror. I feel like that's probably the the most iconic song from Bad. 
years later. Really? I guess I guess my dad just like hated that song growing up that we never really listened to it. So I always think of you know bad and the the the, the dancier cuts as the ones. That's not a smooth biased. criminal. That's not a biased opinion. I'm just it's 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 just it's who you are. It's just who I am. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so this time, Michael Jackson, um, the Bad Album is coming out in just a few days on the 31st of August. So you can already imagine that the fever is record high for it. Interestingly enough, um, we'll talk about Saida Garrett, who at this time, uh, a songwriter, she actually will will have a hand in co-writing Man in the Mirror right. um, with, for the album. But this, now this is something I find still to this day kind of almost hard to believe. So the song, obviously a duet between a man and a woman Michael Jackson wrote. He asked several women to to duet with him on this song, and in 1987, they all turned him down. And do, you have, do you have any ideas about who were some of the people he asked? Was Whitney Houston one of them? Uh, Whitney was one. Yeah, all right. I guess Clive said, you know, we're too busy with our own album, can't do it. Um, who knows? Aretha Franklin, another one that he'd asked for. And Barbara Streisand, ah. among others, yeah. I could hear her doing that song. And they it's all. kind of in her style. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, because it, it's you know, it's it's a it's a soft, you know, very lush, tender, production. yeah, yeah ballad, right. yeah. Um, but in any case, I mean, you think that you know, we we look back now, you know, if Michael Jackson asked you to do anything in 1987, you would have moved heaven and earth because you knew it was going to be a smash right. hit. I mean, which this ended up being, but just kind of crazy that, um, you know, for that. They all rejected him. And it turns out that Saida Garrett, of course, gets lucky. I mean, she, she grabs a number, another number one hit. She says the story is, you know, Quincy Jones, who's producing the song, um, you know, they, they, he, Michael just came in to record one day, and, and he was talking with Saida, and they were just, you know, kind of talking, and he just told her, you know, get in there. You're going to sing it with him. And she was like, as we all probably have been, hey, like, you know, shocked, you don't paral- say no, paralyzed. Right. What? Okay. Well, I, all right, I guess I'm doing a duet with Michael Jackson. <laughs> and, um... As we said, of course, the song will uh, eventually climb to number one. One thing I have to note as a Whitney Houston fan, the song will be replaced at number one by Didn't We Almost Have It All, which we saw as two spots behind a number eight. I thought, so, we were done. I thought we were done talking about Whitney. No, we're not. No, never done. So had Whitney recorded the song, she could have knocked herself out of number one. Oh, right. And would have been potentially the first woman to do it. Which and, didn't happen until Taylor Swift. Exactly. I mean, she would have had that record, you know, a quarter century before before it actually happened. So... <sighs> just lamenting as a Whitney fan, and of course that would have been an, another number one for her. But oh well, oh, right. can't have it all, right? All right, from your uh, fanboying to mine now, we're up to number five, the <laughs> Billboard Hot 100 this week, 1987. Uh, Debbie Gibson is in this week, 30 years ago. She's up for number seven to number five with her debut hit, "Only in My Dreams," her first top five hit on the Billboard Hot 100 this week. 30 years ago. So here to talk about it is Debbie Gibson herself. We've also got joining us in, in just a second here for the interview is Alex Vitoulos, also of the charts department, uh, as we'll find out, a uh, collector of uh, Debbie Gibson uh, memorabilia back in the 80s. She had a lot of a lot of stuff out back then, pins for to put on uh, jackets. Were you, were you a proud Deb head back in the day? I, I was. I saw her in concert in uh, 1989. I, I don't think I had uh, all the collectible stuff. Other you didn't than, have like the Debbie Trapper Keeper or anything? I don't think so. But it's funny she'll say in the interview how when she uh, she's got a new box set coming out, how she'll she'll say uh, how she's getting some of the memorabilia uh, to recap for her career. It's from fans, so uh, she'll talk about that uh, coming up. Talk about uh, sort of like how we talked with Tiffany last week. Uh, Debbie uh, was about to turn uh, seventeen; she was sixteen at the time. In uh, this time in nineteen eighty seven, talking about uh, 
starting a career at that point at you know at that age uh, most people are, are in high school as she was maybe you're getting your your first job after school somewhere she was launching her career with a, uh, on Atlantic Records so uh, she talks about that coming up and 30 years in the business and perspective kind of like Tiffany did last week uh, how she can look back now and uh, know certain lessons she didn't know then and uh, really just uh, insights from someone who's been there uh, for 30 years so Without further ado, let's bring in Debbie Gibson here on the Billboard Chartbeat Podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So uh, we're actually taping this ahead of time, but uh, this uh, podcast is posting on August 31st. I don't know if you knew that, uh, Debbie. So happy arrival day. Yes, happy arrival day. Happy arrival day, (laughs) Debbie. Love it. You're going to have to sing happy arrival day. We'll rework it. Uh. All right. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Debbie, for coming back on the podcast and uh, talking this time about uh, Out of the Blue, your debut album, uh, OO. TB30, uh, 30th anniversary, uh, debuted on the Billboard 200 chart on uh, it was uh, September 5th, 1987. Uh, the week before, Only in My Dreams became your first top five Hot 100 hit. How does it how does it hit you now to hear a 30-year anniversary of the album? Um, it's pretty wild because I definitely don't feel like an old person. <laughs> and I don't consider my fans to be old people. That just sounds like a lot of time, you know? Um but it's really wild when I think about how much has changed in the industry over that time. And I mean, it's just like this journey, this musical journey that I've taken with my audience that we've taken together, you know, we've, we've seen and been through a lot together since that, since that little album kind of burst out of nowhere that we did in six weeks. I don't know if I ever told you that that whole album was done in six weeks time. Well, I was going to ask you, did you, like, had you had the songs written ahead of time or, or did you actually, you, you put the whole thing together that quickly? No, that was, you know, those were my favorite songs from uh, my four years of diligently writing pop music. So, it, you know, I, I had a lot to choose from and, and even a lot that went on the second album was from that crop, right. you know, some newer things, but that whole batch of songs from those four years 
really became the foundation of, you know, my style that people heard. Is it weird to, to look back and have such a tangible a reminder of, of that age? Not everyone can look back. You can look back at school papers to see what, what you were right, doing. But, but you've it's got, you know, this is pouring your heart out at, you know, at such a young age. A glorified yearbook for sure. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a great musical time capsule, really. You know, it's, it's, and when I say great, I mean, it's great to have. It's such a, a slice of life at that time. You know, I think all those synthesizer sounds and all the puppy love diary entry type lyrics and, um, you know, uh, you can hear direct influences from other artists at the time. I always joke that anytime a female singer does like, boy, I'm wondering why it's that's like borderline. I mean, that's Madonna. That's like she gave us that little cry, Uh, you know, so I was like being simultaneously influenced by what was on the radio while recording this stuff. So, um, yeah, I think that's kind of a pretty interesting thing because a lot of artists come out and they say, oh, I was influenced by the Rolling Stones 20 years ago, 30 years ago. This was like I I was in direct contact with those influences and making that music in real time, and you can kind of hear all of that. come. You could really hear that teenage music lover in me and all that youthful enthusiasm at the same time though the classic hooks to the songs they, they stand up on their own they do Thank it, you. It, it's a perfect pop album from beginning to end Amazing. Thank you. And it's a little little piece of bubblegum candy. <laughs> it is. I mean, it, it, you just can't get any better. And to Thank this you. day, I mean, Gary, we were just discussing, you know, before we came in here, 30 years later, I mean, you still hold a record, Gary. Uh, youngest uh, female to write, produce, yeah. and yep. perform uh, Billboard Hot 100 number one, Foolish Beat. Yeah. Yep. I mean, and yep. that song is, is timeless, is classic, and is brilliant. Thank you. Well, you've you've told me, uh, Debbie, that that that's your uh, that and Lost in Your Eyes are your two favorite songs of yours. But looking back at Out of the Blue, what what else on the album stands out to you now as you look back and, and say, yeah, these are these are some of the really good ones on that first album. Ooh, um, you know, I think for some, you know, it, it's funny. It changes all the time, like depending on the mood I'm in. So when you ask that question now, for some reason, between the lines popped into my mind as kind of a little. Um, you know, a little gem that was obviously never released as a single, um, but I think a, a pretty pretty solid song. Um, I always loved Staying Together, which was a fifth single, and obviously we all know fifth singles typically don't chart that well, but it's kind of, a, I think, a nice little bonus to throw out there to the fans, like, and you thought we were done, here's one more. <laughs> but that song, I just, I love the drive and, the temp, you know, I love the tempo. I love it, at, like, I think it, you could hear, like, almost a Motown influence in it. Um, I opened my concerts with it on my first tour. So yeah. I like that one a lot. Is it that true that you were, I heard this in another interview, you were signed to a single deal. And then uh, if only my dreams did well, there'd be a second single. And then if that did well, uh, there'd be an album. But uh, only my dreams did so well that they moved up the time frame and, and uh, said, yep, you, yes, you've got the you album. Yes, you heard correctly. It, it went, if it charts well on the club charts, then we go to a radio single and then we go to another club record and then we go to another radio single. And yeah, so um, they were just like, quick, let's do the whole album and capitalize on the success of only in my dreams, which I'm... So glad they did. And what's so funny is like when I think about it now, 
it's almost impossible milestones they were setting, you know, because you know how hard it is to have a top five club record and you know how hard it is to have a top five radio single. So, um, you know, a pop single. So I think ignorance was bliss had I known that that was a nearly impossible milestone to reach that might have altered something. But I just kind of was like, well, someone's got to be at the top of the charts. Why can't it be me? You know, that's that's the youthful that youthful thing that, that, you know, blind ambition. And um, it it worked. How did uh, Out of the Blue become the title cut for the album? Um, you know, it just seemed like a no brainer. That was definitely one of my favorite songs that I had written around that time. And it just felt again, like I appeared from out of the blue and it just seemed like such a fitting debut title. Um, we toyed with the idea of just going with my name. Um, and I always say to Tiffany, she's way cooler than me cause she, she did that. Uh, but, <laughs> but I was always kind of a concept girl, you know? So I think, um, I like having titles and images and costumes and things to play off of. So uh, it just it felt like a fitting title. And uh, it's always kind of a kind of like iconic for the '80s album a cover. What do you remember about the photo shoot? Oh my goodness! Well, first of all, I hated that haircut. My my team at the time <laughs> and the label and everyone they were like, you know. You know, my hair, my hair looked so when I when I first went to meet like there was an entertainment attorney involved and then there was a label. I had that straight blonde hair and bangs like, you know, like you later knew me to have like in the Lost in Your Eyes video. And everyone was like, well, you look really young because at the time young wasn't in young was scary. They didn't know how to market young. And they knew I was going to be playing clubs. So they're like, we need something edgier, something sexier. Um, something that's less common looking. And so they went with that crazy layered haircut and I had fun with it. I wasn't like, Oh my God, I hate this beauty again of being that young as you're like, it's hair, it'll grow out. Okay, this is fine. I'll try this for a minute. And so, you know, but I, I knew that it was something that wasn't, that hair wasn't totally me. So I do remember kind of being like, okay, this is a, trying something new on for size um you know and i also like i look at that and it's like you can see i have like baby fat even though the jean like the jeans kind of should like dig in at a certain place and so when i look at it now i just think oh my god i was such a little girl um and i remembered the teddy bear thing and (laughs) i just i just loved teddy bears and um the thing that stands out the most, though, is I remember the photographer saying, hey, you're, you're, there's so much skin on your knee and it's pulling focus from your face. And the makeup artist said, oh, I have an idea, very casually. I don't even remember her name. I worked with her that one and only time. She came over and she drew that face on my knee. And girls across the world showed up at my concerts with that face on their knee. <laughs>
Uh, so uh, the other uh, new thing, uh, uh, Debbie, that uh, you have coming out October 20th, We Could Be Together. It's your first box set, uh, 10 CDs, three DVDs, a coffee table book is part of it. How, how long was, was this? And I'm guessing this was more than a, six weeks, like out of the blue. This had to be this a little bit more in the making. This was like um, at, uh, about a year in the making, um, even just, just my involvement and even earlier with demon music kind of laying the groundwork and put starting to put some pieces together to present to me. Um, it's so funny because I was over in the UK last October and we were talking about releasing it potentially in February. And it seemed like we had all the time in the world. And as we started to move forward, I was like, Oh my God, we need like a year. This is crazy. I mean, because you know, um, because everything wasn't digitized back then, um, or really nothing was, a lot of stuff came from my storage units, came from DAT tapes that I had in my house, in my garage. Um, Heather, my manager, was going through photos and and slides and, um, you know, things that, you know, things in um, also in the storage unit and scanning things and there were even a few items we called diehard fans for like, do you have a digital copy, like a CD of this? Because <laughs> we can't find it. Like shout out to Ricky Morgan, one of my favorite dead heads. Um, I was like, try Ricky. He's got more stuff than I even know I ever recorded. <laughs> Cause you know, fans send me stuff to sign all the time. And I'm like, when was I on this compilation? Or, Oh, I remember doing that now for that movie or that whatever. So it, it's been, a wild thing putting this together and one of the most well two of the most exciting things about it um one is that finally all the videos and the concert and everything are on dvd because for years fans like you know tweet atlantic records and they're like hey can we get debbie's vhs's on dvd already so finally yeah. we you know stepped into this era um and then the other exciting thing is a lot of the music that was in my vault. And it's an interesting array of songs because it's not the songs that will represent what I do next. It's these songs that are like the bridgeway between what where you last left off with me and what's to come. And those were the songs that wouldn't have had a home and would never have been heard. But this is such a great way to share them with the fans. And, um, you know, even demos. There was a duet I wrote with Howie D from Backstreet Boys that um, I ended up just doing really a glorified demo of, and we found it really, really in the 11th hour. I mean, I texted Howie and said, hey, remember that song we wrote, you know, years and years ago? Do you mind if I include it? Blah, blah, blah. And then within a day, he got back to me because I said, the deadline's tomorrow. <laughs> I need to know. We're doing the artwork. And um, he was like, without any paperwork or lawyers or anything, was like, please put it on there. And so, and that's a song called the last word. And, but that was something that in the 11th hour I heard and I'm like, you know, this is just one of one of, again, this little gem that I'm probably never going to recut, but it was of a moment in time and it would be really fun to include on this project. And uh, I'm sure uh, Deb heads will know uh, the title cut. Uh, we could be together, but not one of not one of your biggest uh, hits. It was a hot 100 hit. But had that uh, become uh, the title cut? Just like the symbolism of being together with fans or a favorite song? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a couple of things. First of all, that was one of my bigger hits in the UK. 
Um, and so Demon really came up with the suggestion, and I did love it. I feel I do feel like that song has that kind of sing along. Everybody, with, you know, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Um, it has that togetherness vibe, and that was always my concert closer. And I would bring the fans on stage for that song. So yeah, it really somehow feels like not the slickest title, but but actually a personal, warm, welcoming title. And that picture they use, which is the back cover of the Electric Youth album, was always one of my favorite pictures because ah. it's so me. That's me. That was like, <laughs> that is not a stylist, you know. That is a really gorgeous shot, like lighting-wise and everything, of this fun, awkward teenage girl. Isn't and it- so I, I'm really glad they used it. Yeah, isn't that weird how, uh, like, you know, for out of the blue, you're saying, you know, you know I was stylized, uh, people were kind of making my look, but then, you know, just a couple years later, you had completely taken on more of, of your own image and, you know, it's such a, a small time frame, but you know, you know, yeah, what, what a growth actually, period. That's actually a really good observation because I didn't even really think of it that way, but it's true. It's like the only in my dreams video was probably the most styled I ever was. And then it went it, it, like it got more organic from there. <laughs> yeah. I think people started trusting me more. Um, you know, it's like by the third single or the fourth single, again, when we were looking at doing the second album, Doug and Amit were like, do what you did the last time. Like they were like, we just, we just, you know, want to keep the magic going. And, and so, um, yeah, the more I think the more they saw that my connection with the audience, the more they were trusting my instincts. And and like an obvious comparison that I observe now is Taylor Swift because you just I just look at her and think nobody's putting anything on her. Even the even the songs that she co-writes are her. They're her. They're quirky. They're connected. They're connected to her life. They're connected to her fans. What she wears, even if it's glamorous and stylish, you could tell it's an extension of her. And I just think that's the key to the key to all of it. It's not about being the slickest vocalist and it's not about having the cleverest, most craftiest songs. I think it's about the, that connection, the connection within yourself and to your audience, like to keep that going at all costs and at all times is like really the key. And, you know, I always thought, I remember when, when we could be together, it uh, it was on the Hot 100 here in the U.S. I remember it, so I was a chart fan at that point, a fan of yours. I remember it got to number 71 and being so upset that it didn't go higher. I always thought it did. I know, yeah. I know. That was like my little baby. It was like, yeah, yeah the little train that couldn't, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, I think I can. I think I can. No, we can't. But okay. <laughs> we tried. Right. I always thought if it had, I don't know, maybe it had been the second single, it might have might have done a lot better. But, you know, Electric Youth was, was after I Lost in Your Eyes. Right. I think you're right. I think it it could have been, really, actually. that um, so That's another good observation. But, um, you know, again, it's, it's such a fan favorite song that that's where, you know, obviously I, like, kind of lived and died for those chart positions. I loved waiting for that call every week. But then I also started to realize that like in people's minds, only in my dreams was a number one pop song, but it really wasn't. But it's just that it was out there for so long. It felt like that. And uh, and Electric Youth felt like a number one to people. And it was like 11. So I think, um, you know, We Could Be Together had its had its moment somehow anyway so i'm i'm good with that you no know, one other random thing that just popped in my head from the box that that's super fun again in the um the previously unreleased stuff is that uh, i worked on a well a couple of songs but one in particular 
with a friend of mine, Fred Corey, who was a drummer for Cinderella. And again, I called him and I said, how do you feel about Pop Circus going on the box set? And he was like losing his mind because he loves that song. And and I love, again, that what a surprise to have this rock drummer produce a really kind of, kind of Brit pop sounding, pretty slick um, little ditty, you know? Right, um, right. Yeah. So those are the things that kind of like rev me up about, you know, when, when these box sets arrive in people's homes, that they'll get to hear that stuff. A lot of good things to look forward to. Yes. And, you know, 750 Exciting. people who ordered on Amazon got a signed album cover flat. My arm is still recovering. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one of the things, that too, I read, uh, Debbie, is uh, there's a, a new interview with uh, Fred Zarr, who uh, produced uh, some of the songs on uh, Out of the Blue and Electric Youth. Yes. Was, was that like a whole uh, total going back in time, going back to when you guys had uh, worked on those first couple albums? Well, you know, I haven't read the interview yet. Um, I actually came up with the suggestion fairly late in the game, and they love the idea. And I just thought, you know, no one's really ever heard from Fred. And I, I reconnected with him this past year. I had lost touch with him for a long time. And he's still the same old Fred. He's a great guy, and he's a brilliant producer. I mean, I, I feel like those songs, those, like that Electric Youth intro and just... If if you heard my demos and how they evolved from the demo to like what, what when Fred put his polish on, keeping my pure intent, but making it sound so much better and you know just more sophisticated and punchier and um you know he he really is like an unsung hero you know he did the Papa Don't Preach intro for Madonna that the string intro and I don't think he was ever uh. credited for it and um. That was one of his magical things he did. He did My Fallen Angel and, and Who Loves You, Baby, and all things that had almost a modern-day classical feel. So I am really excited to read that interview. And um, it, you reminded me that I should just call up Demon and say, hey, can you please send me the interview? <laughs> I've been so busy doing my interviews. You'll have, um, to wait. You'll have to wait for the box set to come out. I'm going to have to wait until I have to order one on Amazon. Yeah. No, I, I would love – yeah, I would love to hear – from his point of view, what that whole adventure was like, because, you know, one minute he was, he was, you know, he was working on some pretty good projects, but this, this was the biggest for him. And he and I together, I think had a magic and um, created something new. And, uh, you know, his basement studio, the, the vocal booth was also his laundry room. I don't know if I ever told you that. So <laughs> if I recall, there was like an, maybe an orange sheet and you pull the sheet back on a clothesline and, you know, they were Fred's socks. So it goes to show you, like, you know, you don't need to be in the fancy, glamorous studios to make the magic. And, and in fact, I think the fact that it was so down home and we didn't need, like, we didn't quite know what we were making and what we were doing. That, that's what came across. Right. I'm going to have to go back and uh, listen for, for a whooshing of, of laundry in the background. <laughs> Completely, <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, so, Deb, yeah. you, you mentioned uh, of stuff coming ahead and, and, you know, what is ahead for you. Uh, one thing I, I wanted to mention is uh, you said your biggest hit on the Dance Club Songs chart, more than 25 years, uh, featured on Sir Ivan's I Am Peace Man. I can see the rainbow. I see the rainbow. It's a never-ending so hypnotic. Everybody getting tired. Colors of the rainbow. I see the 
I, you know, I don't know if you know this story, but so Sir Ivan is awesome. He's a very wealthy, charitable man who is very into social consciousness in, in records that he makes. And he um, walked into my first task on A Celebrity Apprentice, which was in a deli in Manhattan. And he said, I'll donate $5,000 to the charity if Debbie Gibson does a guest appearance on one of my records. Yeah. And I was like, make it 10 and you've got a deal. So he made it 10. And uh, that was to the Wayutaya Foundation, um, Patricia Velasquez. And, um, uh, you know, a couple of years went by, more than a couple of years. And he came to me with a couple of songs that didn't resonate with me yet. And I said to him, I know I agree to do this, but I want to make sure it's a really right fit. And then he came to me with I Am Peace Man. And I don't know if I mentioned he walked in, but he walked in and he bedazzled cape with a big peace sign on it by the way that to that task um he's a larger than life character and so this song just really resonated with me um you know and he's donating a, a lot of the proceeds to like um gun violence organizations um specifically in chicago where gun violence is at its worst um and to help people who have been through post-traumatic stress disorder uh, as a result of violence in their community communities. So, you know, he's, um, he's a really cool guy. The song is really fun. There's a lot of homage to the LGBTQ community. Um, also about, you know, I can see the rainbow and, um, you know, the unfortunate events in Orlando. And so there's like some, you know, subtle nuances in the, in the record that, um, kind of pay tribute, uh, to the lives lost in that event. So, it's it's you know and it's disguised as this amazingly produced by Ali D by the way who's awesome um you know this festive dance song but it's got a lot of heart a lot of consciousness and um I had a blast being a part of it yeah and all of a sudden I get I start seeing you know hey you're charting what so again it's like out of these really like um unexpected situations can arise these nice surprises and uh, musically, uh, you're working on a couple Broadway musicals. One of them is Skirts, which I remember you were talking about way back in the day. Uh, I remember that title. Yes. Yeah, so Skirts, um, we we are trying to resurrect it again. Um, and my collaborators um, are Hillary Carlip and Katie Ford. Um, and trying to think what I can tell you, any new updates. Really, we just kind of uh, round-robined recently um to see how we could move it forward again because i just think everything has a season you know not to um not to start singing corner of the sky on you <laughs> everything has its season or maybe i will um but yeah you know i think everything um has its moment and that musical is really timeless it takes place in 1964 the year of the world's fair and um it, uh, I think, I think it's timely again, um, because it is about racial tensions and, you know, un unfortunately that topic never goes out of style. I can't wait till it does. But, um, the other musical I wrote with Jimmy Van Patten called it's, it's either going to be called the flunky or flunky town. We keep going back and forth and we're in a spot right now where we've got some great interest in producers and investors and we're moving that forward as well. And that's kind of a dark comedy about people who go to LA and, sell their souls to be around stardom, even if it's by association. So 
people that live in guest houses of rock stars and kind of leech on and um, forget who they are and what their own dreams were and get caught up. You know, I mean, I guess the parallel now also would just be reality television in general. Like it's just um, the idea of these people that um, don't necessarily have a craft. Their craft is marketing themselves on television. And so it's it, it also, I think, is very poignant and it's really fun, really, really fun. That's great. And uh, new music after the box set. Any plans for new songs, new albums? I feel like every time I see you, I'm like, I always ask that. It's coming. It's yeah. coming. And, and, and it still hasn't come yet. And um, there are some good reasons it hasn't come yet. There's There are two very big projects coming up that I am unfortunately sworn to secrecy on at the moment. You'll be hearing about them, though, I promise. Uh, so... There's been a lot going into these other projects, and so the music, yet again, it'll find its little moment. And I know that when the moment comes, whether it's, um, you know, in a month or six months or whatever, I have a feeling it's going to be me going into the studio for like a month or two, and bam, you know, it's just going to pour out because the songs are writing themselves as we speak. So um, that's all to come. Well, we'll have you back on. We'll, we'll keep asking you. How about that? That would be super cool. All right. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Debbie. As always, box set uh, October 20th. And yes, we'll keep asking you uh, about new music going forward. Yes, thank you as <laughs> it always. Will, it will happen, you guys. I promise. You'll be the first to know. All right. Thank you so much. Happy arrival thank day, Debbie. Thank you. Yes. Ah, uh, thank you. Great to talk to you guys all again and see you soon. No, only in my as real as it may seem, it was only in my dreams. The 2016 ballad version of Only in My Dreams, Debbie Gibson, here on the Billboard Sharpie Podcast. Great uh, chatting with her a second time on the podcast. She was on last year. Uh, oh, uh, both times, Trevor. She's been on uh, the day she was born, August 31st, is when we did last year's podcast. And here she is again. So, uh, August can, 31st we, this can we expect next August 31st to check in with Debbie again? It's the present I give to myself every year. <laughs> there we go. So, uh, great uh, chatting with her and uh, Alex Vitoulis uh, as well from the charts department. Hopefully that album, I'm going to keep asking, hopefully that album is coming along. I mean, maybe, you know, it, it, sometimes you, it's a long wait. Sometimes you got to wait like a, like a D'Angelo 14-year break, but... Sometimes it's, it's always slow coming, but it arrives. Yeah, and, and great that this uh, box set is, is coming out. Uh, fun to uh, hear some of the stuff that's going to be on there and talking about uh, getting memorabilia from fans, too, because uh, some fans are just so uh, devoted that they've got stuff that she didn't even uh, remember. Yeah, I don't know how excited she was about that because I think that, that must be such a rewarding feeling as an artist to know that, you know, I mean, because, you know, these people probably have, have obviously gone to college and they probably moved a couple times and to know that they've, you know, kept up with these things that most people might just be like, you know, oh, let me just let me get rid of that era. Like, no, these are the ones who have who have stayed loyal all this time. That's got to feel so good, you know? All right. So uh, Debbie Gibson on the Billboard Sharpie podcast here on the Billboard Hot 100 this week, 1987 in the top five for the first time with Only My Dreams. And a week later on the September 5th, a day to chart, she would debut on the Billboard 200 with Out of the Blue. That was the first hit of four top tens, five total singles that uh, kicked it off for Debbie. So 30 years. All right. And uh, now we'll move on. Numbers four through number two on the Hot 100. My name is Luca. I live on the same 
second floor. I live upstairs from you. Yes, I think you've seen me before. Numbers four through two in the Billboard Hot 100 this week, 30 years ago. Uh, number four, it's another person who was on the podcast last year, Suzanne Vega with Luca. Tom's Diner. Tom's Diner would come after uh, Luca. Uh, this was her breakthrough hit. and She, she was actually here. Did Let's Britney just, Spears cover this song too or no? Not that I know. Nah. But uh, Luca became uh, a top five hit, got to number three. It was down to number four this week. Uh, when Suzanne Vega was here last year, here's just a little clip of what she remembered about that song. I thought of it as a Lou Reed song. I did not see it as any kind of single. The one who really saw its potential was my manager, Ron Fierstein. And he heard it, and he talked to me about it, and he said, I think that song can be a hit, not just a single, but a hit. And I said, are you kidding? I said, no, I said, no, no, no. And he goes, no, it's a song about an issue. And most songs these days are about, you know, nonsense. We, you know, we need more songs about issues, about social issues. And I... F- disagreed with him. I said, uh, I don't think songs really change anything. And we had a very heated argument, which we did all, all the time. Uh, in the end, he was right. And he produced that song. We worked on the production for two years to make it radio worthy. Yeah. So anyone who says it's a fluke doesn't know all the work <laughs> that went into that production. Um, and I'm not kidding. I mean, the arrangement, the uh, key that we put it in, the production, the mix. Uh, we played it on all these different uh, systems in a car, in a cassette tape, CD, uh, you name it. Uh, you know, huge, beautiful, hi-fi speakers. Um, that song was worked to be a single, and it was. It, it ended up being what it was. Yeah, you can you can hear that. That's that's cool to hear that because it's it, it's to me the, the quintessential pop folk song, and I guess maybe that's why it's tough uh, to to get that kind of sound in, in other songs. You, you have to work two years on it apparently on the one song. Yeah, and that's the thing that both Tom's Diner and Luca have in common is that someone, not always me, paid careful attention to the production and worked on it. So I don't know how long DNA worked on. Uh, Tom's Diner, but somebody had a vision for that song. Probably um, Nick Bat did the actual remix, but Neil Slateford, I think, was the sort of marketing genius behind that duo. Um, so I think he's the one who had the idea to put in the da 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 as the riff, right. as the hook. 
Uh, and that, of course, was the, the genius of, of their uh, version of it. So they worked that production. They thought about it, and they really they worked it. So neither of those songs were actually a fluke. Suzanne Vega on the Billboard Sharpie podcast from a year ago, uh, she was on. Uh, interesting, that song being a hit, it really was kind of an outlier for the time, because this is it's about a decade before Lilith Fair. And uh, a year later, Tracy Chapman would hit the top 10 with Fast Car. But in the 80s, when music was so produced to hear a song like Luca, which was produced too, but still very uh, folk driven in the top five, pretty rare. All right, number three, up to number three, it's peak position, just like uh, Debbie Gibson back at number five, debut hit. For Richard Marks, uh, up, Don't Mean Nothing, uh, starting a whole string of hits uh, for uh, Richard Marks as well. His first of seven, his first seven singles all hit the top five, including three number ones. Kind of fun lyrics in that song, too. He's really just uh, skewering the music industry, which uh, kind of a bold move for a debut single to kind of uh, bite the hand that feeds you a little bit. Well, that's interesting, too, because I, mean, I feel like nowadays in hindsight, yeah, you look at Richard Marks as kind of one of the smooth balladeers. You think he would not, you know, not be a problem child. Like, like at all, you know, in a sense, like if you, if you, if you follow him on Twitter and socially, this, this really seems like the real Richard Marks. He likes to speak his mind. So mm-hmm. yes, he would be known for, for having uh, these love songs, but right. he's pretty sarcastic and he's, he, he's fun. He has uh, fun with, with that kind of stuff. And I uh, remember even in, uh, it was 1989, he went on a radio show. It was a live interview show with uh, Adam Curry was the host from MTV, one of the, the VJs. And he just got into a fight with him on this live radio show. I remember hearing it at the time, thinking that this this isn't scripted. And they, it was for the next day. He just yelled at him the whole time. He said, "You you said something bad about me. You wouldn't say it to my face." And Adam Curry didn't know how to respond, and it just got really awkward for the next hour. I don't think they. I think the other host basically did all the talking. But that's how he started the show. Ooh, this is like Wendy Williams before Wendy right. made it big. Yeah. Like this is this is that trash talk confrontational radio. Wow. It was fun. I, I still remember it now. It was, it was that made that much of an impression uh, back then. Uh, so uh, uh, still going really strong. Uh, now he's become a writer for a lot of country hits. He's uh, written number ones uh, with and for uh, Keith Urban. Wrote uh, this. I promise you for NSYNC. That's what Richard Marks song. Oh uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's true. Also worked I know um, with Luther Vandross on one of his very last songs, uh, "Dance with My Father," right. which was released just uh, really months before Luther would pass away in two thousand five. Um, Actually, one song of the year at the Grammys for that. So, so a nice sort of tribute for that as well. But good to see that he's still respected. And I know people also may have seen Richard in the news uh, not too long ago, like around last December, when uh, he was on an airplane and there's an unruly passenger, you know, seated near him, and he jumped right in. I mean, right, the the, the guy was fighting the flight attendants and you know just being really abrasive and. Of all people, Richard Marks is right there, and, you know, he helps do the guy. And, I mean, it's great to see, like, on TMZ and everybody, and he was trending for a little while. Right. Which was, it, was, it was kind of cool to be like, why is Richard Marks? Oh, okay. Dope. All right. So, uh, number three, Richard Marks' first hit. Number two, a down from number one, week at number one, four. Who's who is that? that? Who's that girl? Madonna. That's who that girl is. Who else? Uh, her sixth of 12 Hot 100 number ones. One of her record, still to this day, 38 top 10s. Uh, this point in 1987, just, she just couldn't miss at all. So no surprise that the song uh, went to number one. And it's kind of interesting what uh, is going to tie in to this song with what's number one and number two, because there is uh, there is kind of a connection between the top two songs. Should we get to number one this week, 1987, Trevor? All right, you sat patiently through this countdown for the past two weeks, waiting for this moment. Here we go, the number one, numero uno. Song on the Billboard Hot 100, August 29th, 1987. It is... 
Los Lobos. Number one this week, 1987, La Bamba. So why are we saying it's uh, connected to uh, number two? Uh, so Spanish language song at number one. And Who's That Girl has some Spanish in it uh, for Madonna. She had done that earlier in the year with uh, La Isla Bonita as well. So 30 years later, Despacito, it's all we've been talking about all summer. 30 years ago, Spanish language song, number one. So before Despacito, before Macarena in 1996, those are the three songs that have gone to number one that have been all or mostly Spanish language. Funny how it all comes together, you know? And in the Billboard issue uh, that week, 1987, Paul Grine, who we said uh, started and wrote uh, the Charpy column back then, uh, noted how it gave songwriter Richie Valens his first number one hit because he wrote the song. And uh, his highest charting hit as an artist, uh, Donna, uh, peaked at number two in February 1959. That was three weeks after he died in the plane crash. Yeah, and so we're talking almost 30 years after he passes away, you know, writing this number one hit. And, and how did it kind of come to be? People might be wondering, why why would this have suddenly become popular three decades after after he, he died as part of the of the crew uh, in the infamous day that music died. Well, actually, a Richie Valens movie had come out that same year, 1987, and really re, you know, reignited the popularity right. of, uh, of, of some of his tunes. And, of course, his cover by Los Lobos was got enough momentum behind it to take it all the way to the top. Right. First of three weeks at number one, uh, Come On, Let's Go, also from uh, the movie La Bamba starring Lou Diamond Phillips, who gone to hit number 21. So it was a it was a moment in pop culture, and it's kind of similar to now. You've got uh, all the, the acts you think would be on the charts. You know, Bieber, uh, all the One Direction guys suddenly on the chart, but uh, Latin uh, music, a uh, Spanish language hit that comes along that's just so catchy, can just overshadow everything. And just like uh, Despacito now, La Bamba then, biggest song on the Hot 100 you know there's an audience out there that that doesn't doesn't really um you know get too much recognition from i think from a lot of the mainstream in the u.s but you know when they find something that they like and something that is accessible i mean they they support it you know in droves and i think that's something that hopefully despacito that a lot more labels and artists and and consumers are paying attention to all right so there it is the billboard hot 100 over two weeks here on the billboard choppy podcast number 40 to number one number one this week 30 years ago la bamba los lobos and that that is one of the reasons we did this countdown uh, is because uh, despacito being number one for so many weeks now on the billboard hot 100 just taking it back to a time when you can draw that parallel to when uh, similar circumstances were happening 30 years ago those are some of the biggest uh, Spanish language hits, and we already counted down 96, Macarena. So we've we've looked back at the songs that came uh, before Despacito. All right, so uh, that's uh, this week's uh, countdown. Uh, great having Tiffany and Debbie Gibson on the last uh, couple weeks. Next week, uh, back to regular format, back to the current Hot 100. We've got the new Taylor Swift song on its way to number one on the Hot 100 next week. Despacito now sitting at 16 weeks at number one, already tying the all-time record set by Mariah and Boys to Men. Um, so yes, the, can Taylor stop Despacito? As I'm sure all the lambs, Gary perhaps included, uh, would like to see. All right, so uh, back to 2017 next week here on the Billboard Charpy Podcast. We still have uh, we got a whole chart here. We just did 40 through one. Uh, we got other songs in the Hot 100. What's a good one to close with? Uh, of these, uh, okay, we got six, uh, 60 options to pick from. Let's see. Um. Uh... Okay, well, we finished off the the Spanish triumvirate, so why not finish off the diva triumvirate? We have Madonna up there. We have Whitney. Let's, let's bring in Janet Jackson. How about that? All right, Janet, uh, coming off the huge year in 86 with her album Control, really putting her out there in the forefront as well as one of the next big R&B pop stars. Uh, we heard her actually uh, last week on the countdown a little bit uh, as 
backing vocals on the Herb Albert song, Making Love in the Rain, sitting at 39. Uh, and at her own song, Unfortunately Gary, two spots below, just missing out on this countdown. The song, The Pleasure Principle. Song had hit the top 15 already in its chart run. Not necessarily one of Janet's maybe best-known songs, but I guarantee you one of her best-known videos with her in the studio, dancing with the chair. That's been inspired. I mean, that inspired moves by Sierra, Leah, plenty of others. So let's give uh, Miss Jackson her due and close out. This is The Pleasure Principle. Oh, oh, oh. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 